History and religion have often been the marking points, the justification for the most vicious acts of cruelty and inhumanity. Yet they also provide a powerful stabilizing force and are often used as the ley lines towards creating more helpful, more humane societies. This is the duality of fiction, and it's something critical to understand if we are to find a way out of our current predicament. Hi hi, welcome welcome, this is Metapol with me, Cactus, demystifying politics, culture, and media for all who seek a rational way out. <laughs> As we've talked about before, history is, of course, a heuristic. It's a trade between simplicity and error, and this doesn't mean that it's necessarily bad. History is used to symbolize the moral direction of a country. It creates a simplified version of the past in order to draw easier conclusions about the present. Of course, when this is used cynically by political actors both on the left and the right, it can have horrifyingly damaging effects. However, there are benefits of a unified narrative that can't be underestimated as well. For one, it allows for a much less cynical exchange protocol. It allows for people to communicate without having to think about certain things that would just drain too much of their time if you had to. For example, if you're in a country that believes in itself, that believes in its ability to come to good decisions, then you're naturally going to be more trusting of various programs or various asks that the government has. In the case of something like the coronavirus, this means that you wouldn't have to spend as much money on enforcement of various protocols. You can essentially govern by asking nicely, say, asking people to stay home and having those people themselves understand when they need to go out, reduce their own behavior accordingly, and actually trust the government in following protocols without having to have a consequence attached. This allows certain countries, particularly those with newer reforms or governments like South Korea or New Zealand, to fight the coronavirus effectively without having to resort to some of the more inhumane protocols of other countries like China, or without having some of the more negative consequences and widespread like countries such as the United States. Essentially, what's happening here is that there are certain ideas where thinking about them is often more expensive than their negative consequence. For example, we don't spend that much time worrying about car crashes because there's not that much control that we actually ultimately have, and by being constantly paranoid of such a thing, we would actually be creating more of a harm on average to ourselves that would be even greater than the harm taken by the risk of a car crash. All of this is to say that unified narratives, such as history, can be really good. However, this simplicity and this assurance can also have a downside. You can see this when it is used as justification for any types of programs that are not actually effective. Of course, 
at the time of justification, at the time at which these programs are actually being argued for, we don't necessarily know if they're good or bad. Not for certain, at least. However, with something like the mass surveillance state, the mass monitoring of data of American citizens, this is one case where in hindsight, we know that patriotic language, the historical progression of the United States, and wrapping these surveillance state programs under the guise of counterterrorism has resulted in a program that is largely ineffective, highly unconstitutional, and downright destructive. The most grave consequence comes when there is irreparable separation from different people in a country from the unified narrative or from reality itself. You can see this with conspiracy theorists on both the left and the right, who have written into their own lore an alternate history. This uses the same compelling motivations that normal history holds, that normal religion holds in many cases, in order to trick unsuspecting victims into actually believing in something that doesn't exist whatsoever. Of course, in this case, the trade between simplicity and error is one that gives you much more error than benefits you could ever receive from the simplicity, since almost every action that you would take undergoing these kind of conspiracy theory narratives would actually result in something that is self-damaging. The more accurate, albeit cynical, way to think about history is the quote-unquote guns, germs, and steel perspective. Guns, Germs, and Steel is the title of a book by Jared Diamond, in which he makes a case that our perception of history is warped by biases that make us over-attribute our present to certain things. This includes the quote-unquote great man theory of history that essentially supposes that history is decided on very specific, highly influential figures. However, the Guns, Germs, and Steel case instead makes it so that you can look at history as a larger curve with certain bumps along the way, and that in fact, these supposedly pivotal decisions are actually just the bumps on a curve that is driven by exponentials and driven by various other factors, namely in the book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, talking about the power of pandemics, as well as the power of two types of technology. I would personally make a similar case. Much of the world's geopolitics are highly influenced, if not fully determined, by resources and by technology. This includes the conflict in the Middle East, the rise of China, and the history regarding the Cold War. Of course, these economic factors are in turn determined by things like technology and things like population, which once again, are the larger parts of the exponential curve. Of course, this model has its flaws and can be an oversimplification as well. Moreover, it doesn't nail down all of the factors in a way that is completely predictive of where our future is going to go. However, especially compared to the other models of history, I would suppose that this is a much more effective heuristic. It gives us a lot more in terms of value while shedding much of the error. However, the greatest strength might come from the idea that this is very difficult to manipulate in a way that doesn't require 
additional evidence. If your foundational theory of history is that it's highly determined by other economic factors, then you're going to need to provide a case for those factors, typically ones that include significant amounts of evidence. This makes it much more difficult to manipulate history for various political goals, which is something that you see actively happening in third world countries as well as recently in the United States. This goes back to the idea that we've talked about previously of les cités, of a French secularism that seeks to put various foundational values of the state out of reach of the politically or religiously motivated. This is especially relevant in the states because there seems to be increasing polarization in educational areas. It's, while possible, very difficult in order to teach the natural sciences or mathematics in a way that doesn't connect to the fundamental principles, that doesn't connect to something that is observable in real life. You're going to find it very difficult to gaslight children into believing in a false notion of gravity if they can test it with their very own eyes. However, the same thing is not true about history, and it is why those types of departments are the most targeted in these types of quote-unquote culture wars. This is why you see increasing corruption and increasing political pressure on various more historically apolitical parts of the governing system, including school boards, including local offices, that would have to do with education. There's been an idea in the past that this is a realm that we are just simply not willing to touch, that there is such high of a stake, particularly when determining the future of the next generation, that any type of active intentional political influence in these areas would just be considered verboten. This isn't to say that there was nonetheless some small amount of political influence, however, there was no active pressure in that domain for a long time. And the previous campaigns that did exist, most notably the one stemming after the defeat of the South in the United States, was looked upon incredibly harshly by much of the history establishment. In the modern state of hyperpolarization, there is both less of a limiting principle when it comes to politics and more of a marginal benefit to actually seize these educational institutions. History is an incredibly powerful thing. It sets context for politics, and it creates the ability to depict certain things as completely outside of the quote-unquote Overton window, the set of beliefs that are considered common or are considered acceptable in polite society. Moreover, it gives a set of allegories or comparisons for people to make. It's easy to look at a certain pattern and say, this is similar to a grievous thing that happened in history, whether it be something that happened during the Nazi regime, or whether it was something that happened during the Soviet Union. Of course, these comparisons can be used as well as misused. They can be used to compare things to Nazism or communism that aren't actually anywhere similar to those things. This has been something that's been increasingly escalating on both sides in the past few years. However, the more pernicious aspect 
is to try to manipulate the allegory set itself, is to try to manipulate what comparisons would be made and what comparisons would be considered suitable in a way that is beneficial to one or the other political side. That is because these allegory sets are essentially an accelerator on communication. It allows you to communicate more complicated ideas in a very simple way. Again, another heuristic. And by eliminating the ability to use these heuristics by one political side, it makes it so that it takes a much longer time to communicate an idea and often requires that the idea be communicated in more technical and less emotionally compelling language. Particularly for those of you in my audience who have more of a technical background, this probably seems fine to you. In fact, you probably think that it's better to have one of the sides communicate in a more technical way. Obviously, it would be more clear, it would be less emotionally distracting, and it would be more to the point. However, this isn't the way that much of society operates. Unfortunately, there's a limited time in the world, and not everyone has the time to constantly pay attention to politics and to think about things in a technical, highly complicated way. Many of these people are incredibly brilliant. They simply don't have the time to invest because they're spending it on other things, like thinking about innovation, thinking about running their business, and other things about their own life, instead of worrying about politics. In fact, they're probably benefiting the most from this type of acceleration. They're able to navigate their life more effectively and accomplish more things because they can use these allegory sets to communicate, because they can accept the error of the heuristic and get that simplicity that allows for much more to be done. When these types of people who are focused on engaging in their own lives run against an allegory set that's been manipulated, it can easily lead to one type of politics seeming much more dominant than the other. Historically, this has happened to the benefit of the right wing, particularly after 9-11, where people who were going about their ordinary lives did rally around anti-terrorism. After all, terrorism is bad. I oppose terrorism, and almost all people do. However, this allegory set, particularly the comparison to 9-11, created a very powerful motivator to do various authoritarian things, like the aforementioned mass surveillance state. An item was maliciously added to the allegory set, a comparison between the attempts to stop 9-11 and the new hyper-surveillance that was being implemented. This was a false comparison, and it produced a false allegory set that ended up manipulating the politics and the public perception to come. And in fact, this is the active attempt of various political actors across the spectrum in our present day. So, how should we deal with these types of threats? One is, of course, to get involved in local activism in the best sense possible in terms of trying to oppose these attempts to manipulate the education system. Organizing locally creates a strong, politically salient coalition, meaning that any politician in that area will be actively aware of this coalition, of the group of people who are focused on protecting these foundations 
which understands that the attempts to grab them by both sides of the political aisle can only end in more delusional beliefs. Moreover, we should be much more willing to address these historical narratives as being closer and closer to fiction. Returning to the idea of narrative bias, stories approach fiction as population increases. The more people are on the planet, the less one isolated incident actually matters to anyone. So, in history and in the present, we should be incredibly skeptical of things presented without a statistical breakdown, of things that are presented as, oh, look at this horrible thing that happened to one singular person. Because when this happens, the selection mechanism is a social network. This isn't to say that statistics are always perfect. They, of course, are only collecting one specific data point and can't tell the entire story. However, the competition is not between that and some greater ability to gather information. The competition is between that and a selection between social networks that, as we've talked about on previous episodes, suffers from narrative bias, suffers from negativity bias, suffers from confirmation bias, and ends up spitting out the most polarized, the most extreme, the most delusional types of beliefs. So, when people are making anti-intellectual appeals to history, or to quote-unquote lived experience, know that the competition is not between a holistic understanding and a statistical understanding. The competition is between a hyper-polarized, social media-generated reduction and a statistical, mathematically and scientifically rigorous reduction, the latter of which is much more effective in approximating what is happening. The same thing applies in a hyper-polarized political environment, or if people are making claims based on these kind of straight-line fallacies, first, remind them of the facts, engage in good faith, and bring up things like guns, germs, and seal, bring up things like narrative bias, bring up things like these social media selection mechanisms. Many people can be swayed by these things, because they've simply been using the historical narrative as a default setting, as, quite frankly, historical narratives are somewhat intended to be used. However, treating these historical straight-line narratives as anything even close to approximating reality is, quite frankly, ineffective and a waste of time. The trade that I talked about in the beginning, the trade that makes communication more efficient in exchange for some error, has been completely corrupted. In fact, litigating many of these false historical arguments actually makes political communication more time-consuming, while at the same time introducing more falsehoods. The ability to cohere, the ability to get along, and to live in a prosperous society will nonetheless suffer, even if we revert to a state where we are just simply skeptical of any type of unifying narrative. As I briefly mentioned in the beginning, we should not underestimate how beneficial these things are to our everyday lives. So, what is the way out here? Fundamentally, there are moral beliefs, there are moral passions that are generally agreed upon by the vast majority of people. 
Jonathan Haidt's Moral Foundations, which I covered in a previous episode, can be seen as the distilling of many of these moral values. While their salience may not be agreed upon by all people, particularly all people of differing ideologies, these core fundamental appeals, particularly when mixed together, can be seen as a grassroots rebirth of some of these narratives, living by the simple principles of being kind to your neighbor, of reciprocity, of liberalism, treating people like individuals, and of creating exchange protocols that don't jump to conclusions, but instead assume good faith to start. These simple principles can already bias a lot, even if it's not quite the same as a unified historical narrative, and in fact allows us to bridge the gap of ideology and even the gap between people who may be conspiratorial in belief. Finally, how do we address the bad faith actors? How do we address those who are too far gone, those who have no tie to reality? Well, unfortunately, this is still an open question, and I try to resolve it with what I call the triage problem, trying to identify whether someone actually believes in one of these conspiracy groups. There are various ways that can be done, but I think the most common one is if they repeatedly stick to their narrative without actually engaging with the challenges that are presented. Essentially, if every single thing they reply with is a complete non sequitur. This means that they're replying without actually considering the question that is being asked. You could ask with a question about free speech, and they might respond with a talking point about economics that is completely unrelated. That's the number one identifier I've found, but I would absolutely encourage you to talk about more identifiers and to reach out. You can do that by leaving a 5 star review and asking a question on Apple Podcasts. I will be sure to answer those in a short time frame. You can also give a 5 star review and an email screenshot to metapoliticspodcast at gmail.com. What you can also do to keep up with more information and to help fight the good fight is to subscribe at cactus.substack.com, completely free of charge, and to share these ideas with everyone you know, either just by talking about them, or with social media, or by sharing the podcast itself. I'm sure that there is something valuable to be used for almost everyone in your life. Moreover, it allows more people to be aware of the game that's going on, to look at these various mechanisms that are being used, these various political ploys, and actually see where they're coming from. This not only gives people knowledge and the power that comes with it, but it allows them to explore their own ideas in a way that's aware of what's actually happening, that isn't as confusing anymore, and that allows them to work through it in their everyday lives and come to their own solutions that they can then contribute back to the rest of us. So even if you're just sharing with one person, that's a lot of benefit to them, to you, and to all of us. And if you do that, then thank you.